Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Koshi here. Before we get into this episode of The Call, I've got a favor to ask. The bigger the Ausbiz audience, the more we can invest in great content and keep providing quality investment ideas to you for free. If you could just take a minute of your time to leave a review of the call in the Apple podcast app, it'll help keep our tribe growing. And of course, don't forget to catch up with all the best interviews each day at ausbiz.com.au. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the call. Welcome back to Ausbiz. Nice to have your company as we kick off the afternoon here with the call. Uh, 60 minutes, we take a look at 10 stocks. We put it to our, put them to our expert panel for adjudication. I uh, choose a stock of the day, something that's been in the news. We get it all done in the next hour or so. And uh, great to welcome today's panel, Mark Morland from Team Invest. Mark, good to see you, sir. Welcome back to the good call. Good to see you too, Koshi. And Scott. Scott Phillips, welcome back from your travels, boy. If there's one Australian who can time holidays well, <laughs> it is you. Um, mate, I can't it's complain. It's been the pictures were fantastic. Yeah, thank you, mate. I had a great time. I didn't see, I didn't post as many as I otherwise would have because while I was there, I know plenty of people were in lockdown or restricted, yep. so I kind of felt a bit guilty getting away. But mate, yeah, in the USA, Flinders Ranges. Uh, we'll pin a pound up through southwest Queensland, just a beautiful part of the country. Yep. Uh, if you get a chance post lockdown, mate, highly recommend it for all of our viewers. Yeah, it is stunning. Um, it is. The, uh, um, certainly the range at Flinders Ranges and up to Lake Eyre and around there mm-hmm. is a beautiful part of the world. Spot it's on, great mate. stuff. Yeah, well, good to have course. you back. I did prefer the holiday beard, though. <laughs> the lockdown beard. You looked mate, very dapper, I've got to say. I was referred to by the Sean Connery and Santa Claus, uh, <laughs> but more importantly than either of those things was my lovely wife said the beard's got to go. So it will remain a holiday beard, unfortunately. This time yep. next year, maybe we'll see how we go. Yep, they always make the decisions. All right, <laughs> exactly. let's get uh, cracking stock of the day. I thought we'd take a look at Santos after oil search this morning confirmed it had rejected an unsolicited script-based takeover proposal from Santos that valued the company at just shy of $9 billion. Santos confirming the approach was made on June 25. However, the bid was only revealed to the market yesterday after oil search was asked during an investor call following the shock uh, exit of the company's chief executive. Uh, Santos telling the market it had put forward a uh, prospectus for a genuine merger, which would have given Oil Search a three, 63% control in the uh, combined company with a market cap of $22 billion. Oil Search said the proposal, which was assessed by the board and advisors, wasn't in the best interests of shareholders. Um, no, number <clears throat> number one, um, I thought continuous disclosure meant that. <laughs> We probably should have been informed of an unsolicited offer. Um, but Scott Phillips, uh, uh, what did you think of um, what do you think of Santos um, at the moment as a stock, um, even after last night's uh, big drop in the oil price? 
Yeah, Kosh, yes, you say, number one, I also would have expected, A, we should have been informed, and B, I would have thought Charles might have liked to actually express a view on that takeover. After yep. all, shareholders do own the company, not the board. So, uh, you know, I think in, in best best case, best practice, we should have seen that information, whether or not it was worth doing a, a deal or not. It's a very different question, but it's up to the owners, right? Imagine if you owned a business and someone came to the manager and said, look, I'd like to buy your business. and said, no, no, I'm not going to bother telling the boss. I won't tell the owner, just the answer is no. Um, it, would be a, it would be a travesty, and I think that should have been disclosed. I don't love the business, Koshi, and it's generally an oil price question for me. You know I don't like commodity businesses, generally speaking. Yeah. This one, Santos, has too much debt for my liking. And an oil price, it isn't as cheap as it might otherwise be. Now, I don't make predictions, particularly about commodity prices. That's a mugs game. But if the price was to fall, these shares are worth a heap less than the current price. If you have a view that somehow the price will be higher, well, good luck to you. But I also ask you, well, how do you arrive at that view and how, do you, how are you sure you're right? because most of that is just educated guesswork at best. So if you're going to buy these mobs, you want to buy them when the oil price is depressed, not when the oil price is higher than, than it has been in the past. And frankly, it's riding pretty high right now, despite the fact, as you rightly point out, that uh, OPEC has just agreed to increase the amount of production, which will have a depressing price, uh, depressing impact on the, on the commodity price. So if you want to play in this space, Firstly, I would say I wouldn't, but if you want to, wait until the oil price is low and the share price with it. That's yeah. the time when your upside reward is, frankly, out, outweighs meaningfully the downside risk. Yeah. Uh, Mark Morland, oil searches, uh, number one, didn't declare it to shareholders. But then over the last couple of days, a chief executive has stepped down on sort of a whole bunch of... Uh, uh, Shall we call it governance issues? Um, yeah. So it's it's a really interesting time for them. It is, um, but if we go back to Santos, which is really the uh, the question yep. here today, it's it's been a pretty miserable company, really. And and uh, as Scott said, it's obviously relied on the whims of the oil price. But if you actually look at the history of it over ten years, they've only made a profit six out of ten years, and yeah, this is four years they've actually made losses. Now, if I look at the share price, you go back 10 years, it was $14.72, and it's currently $6.83 now. So that's more than 50, or down more than 50% over 10 years. And if you look at the intervening years, it, it, the, highs, the high has been 13.70. That's the highest it's been since then. And the lows have been, this is the low of the highs, is about $5. And it's currently $6. Yeah. So you look at that and go, well, if you're a shareholder in this business, have you have you made any money on your investment? And, and you'd have to be pretty lucky. You would have had to bought it at the right time. And the right time was um, in the trailing 12 months, it was down to $2.73. So if you bought it then, and that's, by the way, the all-time low that's been virtually for the 10 years, um, going back to uh, Scott's uh, issue of you want to buy it when the oil price is low, that was in 2020. But even still, this company has not been good at generating um, wealth uh, for shareholders. Um, it's doubled its shares outstanding over that period as well. Uh, it, uh, why would you bother? I mean, if you look at the returns on it, we're actually showing, um, uh, we can't actually calculate it because it's making a loss. You know, it's actually a loss in the last 12 months. So yep. um, my uh, conscious investor doesn't even want to think about it. Yep. Okay. All right. A boy. Now let's get into the stocks that, um, that our viewers have sent in. And Mark, Kate wants a view on Viva Energy. Um, it runs a whole string of uh, petrol stations, probably one of the biggest petrol station um, uh, owners in the country, also owns the Geelong oil refinery as well. So they're into retail and, and refining oil. Um, they've had, their first half update was, um, uh, was pretty good. Um, they're, 
in the non-aviation set, it also does aviation jet fuel as well, which of course has taken a bit of a hammering with, uh, with not too many planes flying uh, up until the last month or two. Uh, what do you think of Viva? Uh, well, I had a look at it. In fact, when I read the blurb about what they do, it's actually quite a complex business. So not only yeah. do they run a, uh, an actual refinery, which would be one of the l l last ones I left, I would assume. Uh, they've also got retail. They've got, they supply jet fuel. They supply chemicals. I mean, this is a, quite a, uh, a complex uh, business. But it's also, from a market cap point of view, it's 3.3 billion. I mean, it's a, re it's a decent size. But the, if you look at the history, the, the, the earnings have been on a very, very strong descent since 2018. So prior to 2018, it looked reasonable. When I say reasonable, the return on equity even then was only eight. So it doesn't even get to, never has never been at our minimum of 10. Um, and the actual EPS growth rate average has been negative 77%. So it's actually sliding down. It's gone from uh, 14 cents down to negative over the last uh, three years. So it's it would be speculative at best. And if you look at the history of the numbers, they're just they're not. They're just terrible. Yeah. Uh, Scott, what do you think of Viva? The government, what was it a couple of weeks ago, came and sort of um, uh, provided some support to make sure that that Geelong refinery will continue for the next 10 <clears> years or so. More in the uh, a national security issue. Yeah, and that's probably a positive, Koshi. They're underwriting the margins effectively, and when government's going to put its hand in its pocket and give you some money to make sure you're making money, that's probably a good thing. Now, the, the upside is capped for Viva, uh, but it's better than having nothing at all. It's a, a job keeper of sorts for, yeah. for the oil refiners. It probably is good national policy, I guess, uh, if you believe you need to have local refining. I'm not sure that I'm uh, that adequately prepared to or, or qualified to talk about national security issues, but it seems reasonable. From Viva's perspective, though, and I've got to take Mark's point, three years ago, it made about 14 cents a share. That's about 15 times earnings on the current share price, which is not stupidly expensive, nor is it particularly cheap, particularly, as he says, for the following two years, they made less money and then lost money. If you believe that somehow this is the bottom of some sort of earnings cycle, then maybe there's something there for you. But if it takes one, two, three years to get back to that 15 cents, you're still paying 15 times earnings. Uh, and so you're still really not clearing any particular hurdles. Now, you might get some upside if the market gets excited about the stock, but there's just nothing in its history, or frankly, I don't think it's outlook, to suggest this is a long-term market beater. You've got to kind of grab something and say, you know, what, what is it that can make a meaningful long-term difference? The, the government support is not going to do it. It'll help, absolutely. It'll make more money than it otherwise would have, and that's positive. Keeps it in the country, which, again, as shareholders, we're pretty happy that if you own shares, you, you want, to, want it to hang around, so it's all positive there. But I just can't see why you would pay today's price for a loss-making business. And I said, even one that at its best over the past three years has, has been about 15-odd times earnings. The maths just don't work out for this one, so I'd give Viva Energy a miss. Okay. All right. Andrew wants a view. Interesting little business in UTEP. Um, uh, Scott, uh, Andrew says biotechnology company into the development of its LAG3 immunotherapeutic products for cancer and autoimmune diseases. Has announced mm. some positive news over the year. Share price has gone from 20 to 50 cents. Can you please give us your thoughts on this stock? Um, share price has been under a bit of weakness in the last week or two, hasn't it? Because they've done a big placement as well. Yeah, that's right. And I think it kind of depends on where you start from. The share price has gone from 20 to 50 cents. If you zoom out 10 years, it's gone from $2.50 
to 50 cents. And so I suppose it depends on where you want to start your, your journey from, what you want to look at. You mentioned the placement cost. When I was doing the numbers, I've got some here. They had 126 million shares outstanding 10 years ago. Now, uh, video or TV isn't great for, for numbers, but stick with me. 126 million 10 years ago, now 487 million wow. shares. So a fourfold increase in the share price while the share price has fallen, or sorry, share count, while the share price has fallen by about, uh, you know, was it four fifths? Um, it's not a pretty story. And the reason is because over that last 10 years, it hasn't turned a profit in a single year. And in fact, only reports reportable revenue that is rounded to two decimal places per share in two of the last financial years, two cents a share last year, one cent a share in the 2018 financial year. This is your classic biotech lottery ticket. This is the company that's hoping to, and we hope it's successful, find solutions, cures, treatments for cancer or immune diseases, as you rightly say. And we all hope these businesses do well as a result, because we'd love to believe that healthcare is going to improve, and I think it will over time. Will this company be successful? How long will it take? How much cash will it burn in the meantime? They're unanswerable questions. And so if you're buying this one, you are literally buying a lotto ticket. Maybe you're hoping the share price bounces back in the short term. Maybe you're hoping somehow, hoping beyond hope that maybe this one or a basket of biotechs one or two strike it lucky. Uh, my colleague Andrew was only telling me about Moderna, the, the vaccine maker that went from a $6 billion market cap to $125 billion market cap over a few short years. Now, no one predicted COVID, of course, but it could happen. It, it, you know, Maybe Immutep finds the right next drug or treatment. Uh, this is no way of knowing. It is pure speculation. It's pure logic ticket stuff. It's not investable. It's speculative if you want to, but it's not investable. I'd give it a miss. Yeah. Uh, so, Scott, would, st would stocks like this, because uh, they're, they're the stocks that you think, gee, I hope they succeed because, <laughs> you know, um, would be great for detecting breast cancer and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but as you say, they're very dependent on those binary outcomes of whether they get through they get FDA approval in America and all that sort of stuff. So with these, do you approach it by saying, look, I might put a little bit into five of these particular stocks and have a basket of ones that I really hope will succeed to try and sort of limit my losses. Um, hopefully one could be a 10 bagger and the other four, four may not be. If you're going to play that game, that's how you'd play it. Absolutely, right. Koshi. So yes, that's the approach. I don't do it personally. Here's why. If you want to invest in a company, you've got to do so when you think the market's wrong, right? So you have yeah. to either know the company better or the, understand the valuation, or have a view on the valuation, which is different to the market. Now, if I look at this company or any one of another half a dozen biotechs, and I said to myself, is it possible that I know more than the market? Do I think yeah. the market's getting the, the odds of success wrong? I don't know. Do I think the market knows something that I don't know? I don't know. I, I know nothing more about this company than the rest of the market. I don't know nothing about it, but nothing more than everybody else. And so in that case, right. the chance of success are, it is, I mean, even a basket, if you took five on average across the biotech space, I doubt you'd make money. One out of maybe 20, one out of 40, one out of 60, maybe right. might make money. And so you can't just buy a, a representative basket, unfortunately, um, just because the odds are so small. If you win, you win huge. But if you lose, you lose big. If I bought five, there's a very, very good chance all five go badly. If I bought 25 or 30, maybe one goes well. Does that pay for yeah. the others? I, I, probably not. Frankly, the numbers on the, in the industry aren't great, unfortunately. Maybe you find the CSL. Maybe you end up with a, a cochlear style. We're not talking about biotech with cochlear, of course. But maybe you get one that finally breaks through and does something wonderful. Uh, the odds is really, really against you. Otherwise, I said the share price would already be high because yeah. the market would factor yeah. that in. So yeah. no, you're kind of trying point. to play. You're, you're playing the odds that aren't in your favor. Yeah. Um, Mark, um, yeah. it's it's a fascinating area, is it? So many well, potentially I, it, good I, it, stories. It, that's right. I, and I, 
two things I heard from both of you was there was a lot of talk about hope, and yeah. hope is just not a strategy, and uh, it's not it isn't investing. It, it is absolute speculation. Now the other problem is, as Charlie Munger, Buffett's partner, says, you want to invest within your circle of competency. In other words, invest right. in businesses you can understand. Now, if you look at JB Hi-Fi, for instance, or some of our retailers, oh, I understand those businesses. They're really pretty quite easy. Um, but at biotechs, when you start talking about new innovative drugs or treatments and so on, it, even if you're a medical specialist, you might struggle to be able to have put a realistic judgment on how likely whatever it is they're doing is going to be, uh, A, successful and get through clinical trials, and B, uh, get passed by FDA, and then they can market it and produce There's so many uh, issues yeah. in all of that that it's just, it's not even, I don't think it's even a good speculative bet. I think I'd much prefer to take the money that I would put into IWM to the casino and have some fun on playing blackjack. That's about, <laughs> that'd be my view if you want to waste your money. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, our next stock, um, uh, Mark, is uh, Kodan. Uh, Jacob says, uh, be interested in Mark and the, and the panel's view on Kodan. I've been an investor in the business for a few years. My buy price was $2.20 back in 2018. Kodan, of course, makes metal detectors uh, and also, which is by far the biggest part of the business, along with uh, they've diversified into communication gear as well, haven't they, Mark? Yes, this is a quality uh, business that's based in Adelaide. It's been around for a uh, very long time. In fact, the founder was a good friend of my family's, who's now about 96 or something. So, um, But it's... Um, it's a fantastic business, uh, and I congratulate the uh, the viewer for buying it at two dollars twenty. So it's currently seventeen dollars. So he's done eight times uh, his um, uh, his uh, uh, capital value in plus three, in plus three years. That's good going. Yeah, yeah, it's excellent. So it's been fantastic, and it's been a wealth winner for Team Invest members. Not widely held, uh, but we've done quite a lot of work on it over the years. And about four years ago, we we had the CEO in to in Melbourne and. Uh, he was pretty impressive, a youngish guy, and we thought uh, you know, some of our members bought it. Unfortunately, I didn't. <laughs> I yeah. wish I had. And, of course, now what's happened is uh, it's the P's gone up to 37 times earnings, and their EPS growth rate is uh, currently 35%. So the earnings are growing very strongly. Uh, whether that's sustainable over the medium term is questionable. They are very uh, affected by uh, the gold price and all those shows like you know, Outback Gold Miners and so on in Australia, you know, if you, anyone watches any of those, um, they sell those, they sell detectors and they're quite expensive now. If you want a really good detector to find the big nuggets, you've got to spend quite a few thousand dollars and uh, and people upgrade them all the time. So that's their traditional business. They, the radio business and security, they've got uh, government contracts providing secure encrypted uh, radio systems and for uh, emergency services and so on, which is a good business. Um, and then the other thing they had was a mining business where they, they monitored and tracked equipment in the mines and they had a contract with um, uh, BHP in Olympic Dam. They did a deal with uh, Caterpillar internationally to market it. We were actually very excited about that as being a big opportunity, but they've recently sold that business to Caterpillar. So they're out of that. So, uh, it hasn't seemed to have hurt the share price. So uh, we ha we're due to talk to management again to get an update on uh, what the plans are. So very good, very good business, but it's not cheap. Yep. Uh, would you buy it at these levels? Well, on our okay, I'll give you the variation on it. If I look at it on our on our metrics, on default, which means they continue doing what they're doing, and on the current PE ratio, uh, it's giving them a terminal PE ratio of sixteen point five eight, uh, which 
which is not high. That's a good one in five years. It's a five-year model. If the earnings can keep growing at 35, that's the key key metric, then you're going to get 18.6% or less than 18% return per year if you buy it at the current share price. If I then look at our margin of safety numbers, that drops the growth rate down to 14%, which is you know, looking at its history. Uh, PE doesn't change much. And then that drops your earnings down to two cents. Right. Uh, 2%, rather, 2% uh, per year. Um, and that's the problem. So it, it gives you a range of $10 to $24 as yeah. your target price to get a 10% return even. So right. if it continues doing what it's doing, you could buy it now. I wouldn't because it's yeah. at the absolute top of its PE range. And if you look at it at a buy price from our point of view, uh, and it's currently $17, for me, it would be about $8. Right. Okay. And it's not All going right. to $8 anytime soon unless there's some bad news or we have a, mar- a major market correction or something. Sure. Okay. Uh, Scott, what do you think of Codan? I um, was chatting with the chairman at the football uh, the other week because they're all based in Adelaide. And he, re- he was telling me the number of these metal detectors that they sell to African villagers. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever the gold price up, all the villagers sort of pool all their funds to get a village metal detector and they go out and try and prospect. Um, It was a very funny story, but they sell a truckload into Africa. They do, mate. And Mark's done a wonderful job of summarising the business, but I think your anecdote is also why I'd be a little bit cautious. Uh, I'd recommended, and uh, I think I owned for a little while, Kodan many years ago when it went through one of these ups and down stories where basically the gold price crashed and nobody, no, but nobody was buying gold detectors. And if you think about the, the reverse of that scenario where when everyone's buying them, the share price, the, the sales and profits are through the roof. When no one's buying them because no one can be bothered, it goes the other way. And so to Mark's point, you can't really predict it as such, but the reality of the possibility that it could come to pass, I think is something we need to keep in mind. I do share Mark's concern about the valuation. I think I can call it a concern, Mark. Don't put words in your mouth to tell me if I'm if I'm wrong here. But I think at 32-odd times, it's just, it's just too expensive for me to believe that the sort of growth required to justify that PE remains there. Look, if the gold price doubles from here, if all of a sudden it lands a couple of great communications contracts or somehow um, there's a boom in the desire or demand for, for metal detectors, then I guess there's some growth like that. But to have to believe those compound growth numbers are reasonably likely, given what we already know. There's a big fleet of machines out there. Yes, some of them get replaced. Yes, some of them improve. And of course, they're always trying to upsell people or, or sell them new versions. That will be a core part of their business ongoing. But again, to your point, that, that absolutely was the case. The gold price was flying high. They then had a year, maybe two years, I think, where literally nothing happened because the gold price crashed um, and so did the share price. So look, you don't need to worry about predicting share prices necessarily, but when you've got a high PE, high share price that doesn't allow for any decline yeah. in business and requires a lot of long-term compound growth, that's just too high a bar for me. I'd okay. give it on a miss too. All right. Um, Scott Shahana wants a view on Ansel. Uh, Shahana says... It's down 15% from the all-time high, a reasonable dividend. Even with the vaccine rollout demand for PPE, because <clears throat> Ansel does a lot of the, the PPE protective gear for um, the health industry, um, will remain strong in the near, t- near term. Is it a time to buy on the dip, the 15% dip? 
This is a really tough one, Koshi. I don't generally love answer for reasons I'll go into, but you think about the more recent news, it adds an extra level of difficulty for most investors because you've got to try and look at the more recent sales and say, how much of that goes away if and when the world goes back to normal? How much of that stays or grows because we're now more fixated than we used to be on PPE, uh, certainly around most of Australia at the moment. Uh, people are wearing masks indoors, outdoors, all over the place. And of yep. course, uh, answer to the more serious PPE in hospitals and, and medical clinics. The, the question really is how long does that continue for? And I don't think anyone can honestly say they know the answer. So we're trying to, we're having to speculate either way more than we're used to. We have to make a guess one way or the other because we have to put some sort of expectation into that share price. So that's a hard one. Let me go to the, the core business though. The problem for Ansel is that it's in an industry where innovation is really fast and normally, to be fair to Ansel, it's at the front of that innovation cycle, which is great. The problem is that the the, the lifetime or the life the, the kind of duration of that advantage is super, super short. So I like an Ansel to a, a business that's perpetually running on a treadmill just to stay still because it's Chinese-based competitors and competitors from the rest of the world are basically copying their innovations really, really, really quickly after they're designed and delivered. And so it, it's, you know, the, the, the shelf life, if you like the half-life of the innovation is really, really short. If it keeps innovating, if it keeps doing really well, if it keeps running on that treadmill, it'll stay still, maybe grow a little bit. And of course, it's got lots of repeat business, but price is a really, really key lever here. Ansel's trying desperately to get a higher price while everyone else is trying to undercut it and basically take that volume business away from it. That's its business. That's what it does every single day. That's a tough business structurally to be invested in because it's only one slip up to use some of those, so to re-invoke the, yeah. the treadmill strategy or the treadmill analogy. You know, you see, we've seen people fall off treadmills plenty of times. It doesn't take much. And that's the challenge for, for Ansel is to make sure it doesn't fall off the treadmill just to stay still. Maybe it gets a little bit of growth. Maybe it gets a little bit forward from here. So look, the problem being off an all-time high is that all-time high is propelled by the recent growth in PPE. If I was a betting man over five years, I'd say the average PPE purchase per clinic, per person, per whatever you want to call it, it's probably lower in five years than it is last year. And if yeah. that's true, then it's going to go even faster to stand still. So I think it probably deserves to come off that all-time high. The all-time high probably wasn't deserved in the first place because investors probably got too excited about a COVID stock <laughs> and all jumped in. So I would give this one a miss, unfortunately. It's a real, they do a fantastic job of innovating and I love what they're doing. I just don't see the competitive advantage is sustainable enough to justify an investment in the company. Okay. Uh, Mark, mm. what's team members think of Ansel? Yeah, that was well said. I think uh, from my point of view, I, I'd, I'd class Ansel as being a mediocre company. It's been around for a long time. Um, it's it's quite stable in its earnings, even within the challenging environment that Scott uh, 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 explained. The earnings per share have averaged 3% over the last six years. Now, 3% is really, I would argue, probably less than real inflation, but it's not going anywhere. So if there's no earnings growth, then it's very, very important that if you're going to buy a company like this, that you're buying it on a low PE. Now, currently, the PE is at the sort of top of the black, which is about 50, uh, about, let's say, 70% uh, towards the uh, top at 19.1. Um, and it's and the price currently is um, uh, $40. Um, we've got a buy price on it if you were going to buy it, and we wouldn't buy it, of $28, sorry, 20, 28, uh, 20 so $30.95 to give you a 10% return. Right. So at the moment, Ansel, uh, if, the, if it just continues doing what it's doing, our predictions on Conscious Investor are that you would get 4.5% a year total return, including dividends, which is really, really, really mediocre. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be interested in that. And if I wanted to get 10% return, and then for a company 
with with Ansel's Ansel's uh, stability is probably reasonable, then you couldn't pay more than say say thirty one dollars, which is about twenty five percent away from where it is now. So so even though it's fifteen percent down from the highs, it's still it's still too expensive for uh, what your returns are going to be. Okay, all right. So uh, thank you for uh, suggesting that, Shahana. Um, now Phil Mark wants a view on Firefinch a mineral exploration company in, in gold mining and lithium, two sexy sort of metals to be mining, um, but in Mali, in Africa, uh, <laughs> southern Mali. And I thought, yeah, oh, now, this is Mali. an interesting company. And then Mali came up, and, and I've spoken to you two blokes and, uh, before about sovereign risk in terms of your investments. So, Mark, I think I can almost guess your answer here. <laughs> Well, well, that's right. Um, Mali, you know, Africa generally is a shock, shockish, you know, from a point of view of actually ever making money. And what happens in a lot of these places is if you get a good mine and it starts making money, then the government comes in and nationalizes it yeah. or, or basically says you're going to give us half or we're going to kick you out of the country. So there's massive uh, uh, sovereign risk with these things. And these guys aren't actually making any money. They do have active mines and they bought something from Barrick, a gold mine. They've got a lot of stuff going on, but they're actually quite a small market cap uh, relatively for you know, what they say they're doing. Um, I, I would take my lithium exposure through mineral resources in Australia any day of the week. Um, they do. This Five Inch does have uh, hard rock lithium uh, potential. And when they say potential, they're not mining it yet. They're just you know, trying to prove it up. I think it's way too late, so I wouldn't get excited about that uh, yeah. from the point of view yeah. of um, saying, oh, ooh, lithium, it's a sexy metal. And uh, there's, you know, Australia is the largest lithium exporter in the world, and we're a safe, uh, reliable jurisdiction with high-grade lithium. <laughs> what would you yeah. go to Mali for? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing with their gold mining is it's largely uh, tailings um, reprocessing. So what they're doing is they've bought um, a large old gold mine which i assume is is uh, basically um exhausted and they're reprocessing all the tailings because the technology now is better than what it used to be and i think they're getting like uh one gram a ton or something out of the out of the tailings and in a cha- place like mali where labor's cheap and all the rest of it actually that makes money yeah. so so there's an income potential there but at the moment they're uh, they're virtually at uh you know break even uh, yeah there's no there's no earnings and uh, why would you bother yep scott yeah, I, I, I will say for what it's worth, you, you think about companies that are, well, the company should be a Mali Lithium Limited, I think from memory, something like that. now it's called Firefinch, or, and you think, well, you know, maybe, maybe maybe there's something in the name, maybe there's something in the marketing, but there's not much more than that. I can't disagree with Mark's comments at all, and you're right, Koshi, you absolutely saw us coming on this one. Uh, I'm not a Lithium fan in general, I've said this before, not because the demand can't be there, but because... I am reasonably sure that over any extended period of time, supply catches up with demand. It's been true on oil right through the 20th century. It's been true on air travel over the last 50 years. Maybe, maybe this is the one that's different, but you'd be a brave person to bet on that. So I simply wouldn't. I'd give it a miss. Again, like I've said before, with other commodities, if gold and lithium hit some sort of, uh, you know, hit the skids price-wise, all of a sudden there's just being sold cheap because everyone's given up. That's the time you want to go fishing for these sort of guys. When everyone's talking lithium, everyone's talking electric vehicles, everyone's talking Tesla, you know what? That's when the crowd are all in on this stuff. And, and when the tide's all the way in, prices are high. If the tide starts to recede, you're left holding the baby. So, no, I'm not going to give this one a miss as well. Sovereign risk plus commodity risk, no thank you. Okay. All right. Let's just recap uh, our first five stocks on stock of the day. Santos, uh, Viva Energy, uh, Imutep, Codan, Ansel and Firefinch. 
uh, all a no from, doesn't ignite uh, any passion from either Scott Phillips or Mark Morland. Uh, here on the call, uh, we've been following our own fantasy portfolio since the 1st of July last year, thanks to our partner NAB Trade. Um, any stocks that get two thumbs up from our expert panel goes into the uh, uh, into the portfolio. If it comes up again, it's <coughs> to stay in the portfolio. It's got to get a thumbs up from both the panel as well. Let's see how the portfolio is going for uh, obviously after the last couple of days, the week down about half a percent for the month, down 0.5 percent, and since the first of July last year, up 35 and a quarter percent. Uh, some of the stocks recently added uh, Global Data Center, uh, Investment Fund, Strike Resources, Venturix Resources, Galaxy Resources, and Flight Center. Uh, some of the stocks removed Premium, McMahon, and Bigger Cheese. If you want to take a look at all the stocks in the course portfolio, head to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. A uh, quick programming note for you. Uh, stay with us uh, because we'll be speaking live to Hub24 Chief Executive Andrew Alcock. That's from 1.30 this afternoon after their announcements today. So straight from the horse's mouth. Um, let's get into our next five stocks. And Scott, George wants a view on Fisher & Paykel Healthcare. Um, pretty good uh, financial report for the period ending uh, March 31, even though share price dropped as a result of it. Revenues up, uh, profit up 82%. Uh, but interruptions with COVID has been the uh, the problems for all their private hospitals. Yeah, Koshi, this is a really tough one, a little bit like Ansel. We've got to try and unpack the COVID effect. To some degree, interruptions at hospitals, as you rightly say, on one hand. On the other, makers of respirators did really, really well during calendar 2020, and yep. Fisher and Paykel Healthcare among them. ResMed, of course, another company that's done really, really well. So you're trying to unpack how much extra was the one-off? What are they then costing with the delays? Where does it come out in the middle? And unfortunately, ironically, to some degree, Fisher and Paykel are victims of their own success. When profits up 82%, and you're still paying something like 30-odd times, 39 times I've got here, uh, profits for that business, you kind of say to yourself, hang on, what if that 82% isn't sustainable? What if it goes back? What if, it, what if growth is only another 10%? What if it goes backwards and it's minus 20 or 30%? All of a sudden you're paying 50 or 60 times earnings for Fisher and Michael Healthcare. It is one of the best um, underappreciated performers on the ASX over the last, I want to say, five or 10 years. Um, it's a business that just, maybe because it's based in New Zealand, uh, kind of yeah. listed here, doesn't really get on most people's radars, but it's been a really successful company, done a really good job, uh, normally in, in uh, respirator, sleep apnea machines and the like. This is a really growing category. There'll be much, much more demand in future than there was in the years of 2017, 18 and 19. The problem is you've got to try and work out whether 2020 is an aberration into how much it is. And as I said before with Ansel, how much of this is replacing yeah. the fleet of respirators moving forward? What does it look like? I can't pay 40 times earnings for a company whose earnings, I think, are, are higher than they should be because of a one-off impact of COVID. Well, it's higher than they should be. They're, they're real earnings, of course, but they're not sustainable in my view. If I'm wrong, 40 times earnings is still a lot of money to pay. If I'm right, something like 50, 60, 70 times earnings is an extraordinary price to pay. Yeah. So love the business, would love to own it at the right price. I can't pay this sort of price for it, but definitely one for the watch list. This is one of those businesses, if you're looking for quality diversified earnings, plenty of people got heaps of banks and miners and telcos and supermarkets. If you haven't got exposure to healthcare or, or just generally other businesses, high quality businesses outside the usual suspects, Fisher and Paykel Healthcare, definitely one for the watch list. Okay. All right. Mark Morland, what do the uh, team investment metrics say about uh, 
Fisher and Paykel? Um, it, well, they, they say that it's a fantastic business. So this has been a uh, an outstanding wealth winner for uh, Team Invest members for years. So we've uh, we've, we've put Fisher and Parkell up there with um, CSL and Cochlear. Mm-hmm. Um, their main competitors out there are ResMed and Philips, which is uh, Philips as in Europe, European Philips. They've recently had a major recall of all their CPAP units because something to do with the sponge or something in the linings they worked out could be inhaled and cause cancer. Oh. So I think they're they're pulling they recalled eight million. I think it is um, uh, client CPAP stuff. That's all very good for Fisher and Paykel and ResMed, by the way. Uh, Fisher and Paykel about two thirds hospitals, so it's consumables at the hospitals they really make their money out of, yeah. and and they're about one third CPAP, which is the sleep apnea stuff. Uh, ResMed is the other way around, so they're about seventy percent CPAP, thirty percent hospitals, and they, and they're both trying to encroach on each other's markets. Um, I've got a slightly different take on it than Scott. I think I, I, I agree with what he said in theory. Um, but from our point of view, it passes on all our metrics. So this is an outstanding company, and it, ha- it always has been. So there's no questions about the business. The question is, they had a record year uh, last year, and there was definitely a boost from um, COVID, without a doubt. But if you actually look at the history before that, their actual their actual growth rate and earnings over the last six years has averaged 25.3. So sure. that's and the sales growth has been 17.6 average, with very very high stability. So yes, there is a kicker. In, over the last uh, uh, year and a half, uh, and I agree with Scott, that probably will slow down. I'm not suggesting it's going to stay at 80%. But from, an out, from our modelling, what the way we do it is we say, okay, what's the average been over the last six years? So you know, a, a bit of a drop or a, a bit of a, uh, an outperformance doesn't really affect that very much. So we're giving them 25% um, uh, growth rate on our default settings going forward, not 80. And on a margin of safety, that goes down to 13 uh, 13.95% per year growth rate. So if I change nothing else, um, and the PE, we've got the PE at 35 at the moment, which is trailing, trailing PE. Margin of safety brings it back to 27 in five years. And then the difference is on our default settings, you're going to get 27% per year, assuming Fisher and Paykel can average 25% EPS growth. We can debate that. Um, and on a margin of safety, they only have to get 13% growth and you still get 10.11 at the current price. It's in the bottom quartile of its PE range at the moment. So uh, that's, yeah, from our point of view, that's definitely a uh, buy signal, assuming all things all things are equal. But I'd go on the margin of safety numbers, and they're quite conservative. So that's got a terminal PE of 27. It's giving them 13% growth. Uh, they pay out 42% in uh, dividends, and that's going to give me 10.1 at the current price. And in, in an environment where we have virtually zero interest rates on cash, and to get 10% return on safety on a quality company like Fisher & Paykel is cheap. Okay. So right. I'm saying it's a buy. Buy from, uh, from Team Invest and Mark Morland there. All right, Mark, uh, Scott wants a view of uh, Intertech Pivot. They're the big chemicals and explosive company. They make fertilizer for the agricultural industry and explosives for mining. They blow things up and help things grow, basically. <laughs> So you're saying Scott doesn't know about this company and you want me to tell yeah, him about no, it? Yeah, no, it's a different Scott. Viewer Scott? Allegedly, Scott. allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Instec Pivot, yeah, it's been around for a long time. It's just yep. it's just a poor long-term performer. I would have thought that with the mining boom uh, on the on the um, uh, for iron ore and coal and so on, which all uses Instec Pivot's, um, explosives and so on for their uh, blowing stuff up. I mean, if you go up to the Hunter Valley, I, I went up there for lunch a few weekends ago, and the whole time you hear this boom, 
whoop, about every 20 minutes with his underground explosions, <laughs> which is a bit disconcerting, I found. But uh, um, uh, the, the point is, you know, they should be in boom times. But if you look at their earnings, their earnings have averaged minus 13.8 per year with good stability over the last six years. And if you look at the last trailing 12 months, it's down from 11 cents a share to 9 cents. So, I mean, what's what's with all this? The agricultural business, I would have thought, was pretty strong as well. You know, we're, we, we don't, we're not in a, uh, any, I don't think there's any major problems on agriculture. Complica- complex business, lots of moving parts. Uh, it's got uh, quite a lot of, uh, well, well, it's got 40% debt to equity. But bring it back to the calculation of what you're going to get if you buy it. Uh, we're showing it on a PE of 25.9, which is about halfway in its range. And I'm going to get 14% negative return per year over the next five years if I buy it at the current price. And yeah. if I want a margin of safety, I'm going to get ne- negative 17% a year. So it's okay. a bit hard to get excited about that. Yep. But if I wanted to get 10% return, I couldn't pay more than, uh, catch this, 70 cents. Oh, and it's currently right. $2.51. Yeah, that's so, a long So um, it's, yeah, like, no way. Long way off that. Uh, Scott, what do you think of Incitec? I'm probably going to give it a miss too, Koshi, but I'm a little bit less negative than Mark, only in the sense that the price is pretty much as low as it's been. Well, it's been lower this year, but uh, you know, lower than it's been for the previous eight or nine years, according to my numbers. Now, either the business is permanently impaired, and that could be very possible. Maybe people just paid too much for it over the past nine consecutive years. That's also possible. Or maybe this is a, a volatile, cyclical-ish business that's trading at the bottom of its range. I'm not a range buyer, I'm not a range trader. I'm a long-term investor, generally speaking. But if I was going to buy Instatech Pivot, again, the better time would have been maybe you know, uh, six months ago when it was something like a third less than the current price. So there were better times to buy it for sure. Uh, maybe a little, maybe 12 months ago. Better times to buy it for sure. But I'm not entirely sure this isn't a business that has some future value. I think the challenge, as Mark rightly points out, is, and I've said this about uh, other companies, I've said, Ansel, I've said it about airlines and commodity companies, there's a difference between understanding the demand for something and understanding the supply-demand dynamics for an organization. Now, I, by, by the way, Koshi, uh, when you launch your branding consultancy, we blow things up and help things grow. I reckon should be their tagline. I reckon you should sell that one to the company. I, I pr- I'm pretty sure someone of the company's going to grab you on that one. I, I can see you fronting the campaign already. Um, it, but it, look, you, to your point, it should be a business that that actually, you know, how could you not do well? To Mark's point, how could you not do well in this yeah. sort of business where we're looking for more crop yields, we're looking for more, you know, minerals and, and, and metals out of the ground. It makes perfect sense that the demand for these sorts of products should be high and it is the challenge of course is the supply is even higher and that's exactly when you run into trouble this is where having good demand dynamics is just not enough it's literally less than half of the story and many many investors particularly you know early early life investors missed the point hey airlines are going to grow i've said this before a million times airline airline travel went up probably ten thousand fold in the last 50 years and yet the airline industry makes less money now than it did in 1970. And it's a really simple answer, yep. which is supply just boomed. And so when you see an industry, you go, hang on, how could it not be making money? That's almost that's almost your first clue. Because if, if it's got strong demand characteristics and still can't make money, that tells yeah. you almost almost by definition the business model sucks. So I like I, I like the demand characteristics. They will continue to grow meaningfully. I I'd almost be inclined to to look at Instech Pivot just, just on the base of last 10 years of share price and go, hang on. You know, is this permanently impaired relative to the to the rest of the decade, or is it just being sold cheaply because the dynamics are working against it between sentiment and and the operational performance? And I'd almost consider buying it. I can't at 17 times earnings. I'm not really a cyclical or range buyer anyway. 
Um, right. But this is one that if you are that sort of investor, you want to keep a close eye on it. I think it's, as a risk-adjusted bet, and let's call it a bet, it's probably a good one, uh, but no guarantees of success. Okay. All right. Eliza wants a view, Scott, on Hum Group, the old Flexi Group, rebranded itself, which is it's been in uh, basically personal finance and uh, personal loans and credit cards, things like that, uh, turned its hand to uh, buy now, pay later. Uh, so it's got into that market last week or so. It's in, impressed the markets with um, a big increase in, uh, in transaction volumes for its buy now, pay later business, adding, what was it, adding 20% to its uh, customer base as well in terms of numbers. What do you think of Hum? Uh, Rebecca James now runs it, doesn't she? And, you know, uh, the company claim that, you know, why weren't people seeing them as sexy as Afterpay and Zip? And that's the problem, Koshi, which as a rational analyst, I'm kind of inclined to go, but hang on, this is the same business, but it's cheaper and no one really notices it. This is great value, potentially. The yeah. flip side, of course, is the fact that no one, no one, no one recognises it is the problem. Uh, now, you know, we all know the story of the better mousetrap, right? You can't just build a better mousetrap and wait for people to buy it. They simply will not. You need to convince them your mousetrap is better, or even if it's worse, convince them it's better anyway, right? Make it sexier, make it brighter, paint it differently, sell it with a with a with a funky mouse on the front. Whatever you have to do to sell your mousetrap, it's not just about features. It is also about benefits. The people love Afterpay and Zip. There's another half a dozen. And frankly, if you ask people, even even investors, to name half a dozen buy now, pay later companies, I doubt Hum would make the list, even though, to the company's own claim, they were kind of the first, you know, they, they, I won't say they invented buy now, pay later, but their Surtigy Easy Pay, which is the very, very worst branding ever in the history of corporate Australia, where they had those, you know, uh, Harvey Norman, 48-month interest-free, this was buy now, pay later. They literally invented the category. And yet Afterpay just swept everything before them, including the old Flexi Group, uh, and kind of took the category away from everybody. Now, Harm is trying to rebrand. They're trying to come back. They are getting some growth, which is positive. But I've got to say, I'm not a big fan of buy now, pay later in general. But if you look across the category and say, what are the odds that Hum becomes a brand name that rolls off people's tongue, that becomes one of the top one, two, three, or four brands in this space? Maybe they can if they can sign up enough retailers because Hum's, Hum's business or Flexi Group's business was all done by convincing the Harvey Normans, the JB Hi-Fi's, the, uh, the others to join up with them and offer to their customers at a retail offer, not a consumer offer. So they're not going to the consumer saying, you need this, ask Harvey Norman for it. They go to Harvey Norman and say, hey, when you're selling the sofa, offer your customers <laughs> this. If that can continue to be a, a growth opportunity for them, they may be okay. And frankly, it's so cheap compared to Afterpay and Zip. If you wanted a value play in the space, this is the one you'd go for. I just don't know whether they can break out amongst the pack and become a brand that people go to automatically. I think they're always going to have to fight and fight and fight for every customer, and that's just not a great business model. So okay. I'm going. To, this one's on a hold for us at the moment at the full. Uh, we had recommended it in the past. We had it on a hold for a while. It's too compelling to sell, but but the business isn't that kind of front of mind for consumers to make it worth buying. Okay, Mark. No, it's a shocker. Um, I agree with everything uh, Scott said. It's a bit like you know the gates open and the horses have all bolted and Hum's still standing there. Um, it's too late. You know they've, they've missed it. If you go to a retailer now, how many buy now, pay later uh, systems does each retailer want to have in their store? Now they've got to integrate with them as well. Remember, so there's there's work on their behalf. Do you need five or six different alternatives? And the answer is no way. And what retailers will tend to do, even if they're not sure at the beginning and they, they might take two or three, they'll rationalise because it's all work and effort. And I've seen a few places around in local shops where there's they have like three logos on the window. And I, I, I can't even see, I can't see that lasting. And I have never seen a hum one. 
Right. So I think the, the, the network mode that Afterpay has, in other words, they have the critical mass. So the retailers want them because the consumers are, uh, are, are using it. Yeah. And it's a, it's a network mode, very, very powerful. If you've missed out and you're not part of that, it's nearly impossible. It's just like Scott saying, I'm going to set up a, um, uh, an online internet-based book business. And what do you think? And well, I'll be really cheap. So I'll be able to knock off Amazon, no problem. And it just doesn't work. It's yeah. not going to happen. So I'd I'd be willing to take a bet on that. And now, if you look at the business itself, it's performed miserably. 19% average negative EPS growth over the last six years, and we're showing a minus 20% return if you buy it at the current yeah. share price. So yeah. it's nothing compelling about it. Now, yes, yeah. it's it's a better uh, value proposition in theory than Afterpay because Afterpay is not is after making it pay making a profit, Scott. I don't know because I don't watch it. No, I don't think it no, is yet, no. is it? No. no. So Afterpay doesn't even make a profit. These guys at least make a profit. So you have to say it's mm -hmm. a better business than Afterpay. But is it a better business than Afterpay? No, because you've got millions of people yeah. out there who are using Afterpay and they bid it up to a, a massively high share price. No, I wouldn't buy Afterpay either. Okay. But I think that, I wouldn't, wouldn't touch and, it. And buy now, pay later. As you've got PayPal launching their competitor oh. in the last week and Apple saying, oh, we're going to introduce our own buy now, pay later for our product. So well, they're Visa, all... and MasterCard. Visa and MasterCard are talking about it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing bank. It was, it was actually a branding. What was clever about Afterpay? It wasn't the technology. It was the way they marketed yeah, it. It was good marketing. It was, and they, and they, they won the marketing battle. That's what yep. they did. Yep. Yeah. I will all say right, too, uh, just quickly, it's worth thinking about this in the context of uh, what the future might bring. If I, if I was a bank, I would literally, how, how cheap is cash, right? Zero, cost you nothing. Yep. I would I would literally have a, a, a pay later bank transaction account. If I was ANZ or Westpac, Commonwealth, NAB, and I say to people, join my transaction account, pay five bucks a month. I will put I will split your bill over the next four weeks. Every time it comes in, you'll see what's in hold. I'll drop it in over four weeks. There you go, there's after pay for you, no cost, no hassle, every single transaction, you're welcome. And that, that, that arguably destroys the entire business model. So yeah. I think it's a much, much riskier area than most people believe. Yep, yep. Oh, no, I agree. Absolutely. Got to move on fairly quickly. Uh, Brad wants a view. Mark, on Regal Investment Fund, Brad says, uh, being an alternative asset investor looks a good way to diversify with returns not closely correlated to the market. Regal invest in, or it says a number, it's a lifted investment company in alternative investment strategies and investment advisory. What do you think of that, Regal? Uh, well, I hadn't heard of it before, but I had a look at, I had a look at it, and it's, it's got a market cap of about 460 million, so it's not tiny. Uh, it's only been going, it's only got two years uh, of listed history, which is not enough to know um, anything. Um, I read their blurb, and from reading the blurb, I have no idea what they do. Other than they do, they do diversified funds that aren't correlated. Okay, okay, that sounds interesting. <laughs> with the with the view of getting uh, uh, um, total total returns that are uncorrelated with uh, other things. Okay, great. So if you look at the numbers for the two years, they actually they've jumped significantly um, on, from the first year to the second year. Return on equity is fifteen percent. Return on capital is the same. Uh, well, they all look okay, but it's just way too soon to for me to be able to give you any sort of opinion on whether it's good value or not. Um, what I would say, though, is the um, the uh, it's it is it, it is actually uh, earning money. So the profit, uh, the earnings were uh, earnings per share were a dollar about a dollar ten last year, and the year before it was forty cents. So it's sort of you know, I mean that's looking good for the first two years, uh, but that's two years like okay, yep. See what happens over the next couple of years. Okay, Scott. 
Yeah, too early for me, Koshi. We're, we're running, running out of time. This simply is one that may do well, it may not. Uh, you can't know. And if, you, if you're buying any business, but particularly the investment manager, you want to see some sort of track record. So uh, this is just way too early, too hard basket for me. One quick comment. If you're buying alternative assets to diversify your returns, that's fine. If you want to trade off volatility for returns. If I offered you the opportunity to go half cash and half shares, and I said, guess what? When the market's down, you won't lose as much. That's absolutely true. When the market's up, you won't make as much. And over time, owning yeah. some cash will actually cost you in your terms of your total return. So be careful about trying to balance or if you, if you need to mentally, emotionally offset your losses or minimize your losses because you just can't cope, that's completely fine. But if you're an investor, you want to invest in the asset class and the assets that have the best long-term returns, absolutely. Not in a relative sense, and certainly not in a monthly, weekly, yearly sense. Okay. And our final stock, Ben wants a view, Scott, on Elders, the big agribusiness. Someone once described Elders to me as like an agricultural listed investment sort of uh, uh, company, an LIC, because they're in everything from, uh, uh, from livestock to real estate to uh, feed and Feeds processing. The whole yep. uh, they've got a yep. wool agency. They've got everything right across the spectrum. Exactly. And finance, yeah, and you, I think you're exactly right. And finance, yeah, this, yeah. This is a, it's a great way to have a, a diversified agricultural exposure if you want it. More importantly for me, we, we recommend this one quite a while ago. We've done reasonably well for our members on it because we kind of bought the turnaround story. So the, the, the manager who moved into that role, I can't remember his name, it's completely escaped me, I'm sorry. Uh, but he's done a spectacular job of writing this ship. Sold off some assets, bought some assets, consolidated cut costs. Ran, is running this business really, really, really well. So really impressed with the turnaround job that's been done. The problem is as a result, the market's noticed. And so the shares are up, I want to say four or five fold in the last few years, which is great, fantastic return for, for shareholders. The problem is right now, it's a pretty expensive business in what's otherwise a pretty volatile cyclical space. All this, you know, I'll use the same analogy from before. The tide is in on whether it's crop prices, stock levels, yeah. uh, you know, cattle prices. Um, not everywhere, not across the board, but you know, bumper harvests. This is about as good as agriculture gets now. So, it's a whole so you buy this stock during a drought, do you? Well, kind of, yeah. If you, if you believe the company can a survive, remember what, there was a point when rural co and elders were, were talking about merging yeah. because the businesses were, so, were struggling so badly. I wouldn't say a drought necessarily. Just remember that you don't want to buy a premium, pay a premium price when all the tide is all the way in yeah. because the tide only goes one way Good from point. here. If you're paying a tide in multiple, you're in trouble. Mark talks about looking over, you know, five, six years and averaging earnings. That's a really smart thing to do in general, but specifically with cyclical stocks, if you can look at that and say through the cycle, here's what it looks like. You got a better view of it, so I wouldn't sell it now if I owned it. Uh, we've certainly got to hold it the full at the moment. I, I really like the company. I like the job that the manager's doing. I, I'm going to be really slow to sell this one, but right. I don't know that if you bought it now, you could expect <clears throat> meaningful excess returns. Yep, Mark. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. It's a very complex business. Uh, it's had a history of being difficult to run, and even though the current manager is doing a good job, I, I agree with Scott about that. Um, it's it, we're showing quite a big variation between our margin of safety numbers and our default numbers. So on default, because it's on a P of 11, um, which is not bad, and its earnings have actually been, um, or EPS is 17% growth. So it's begun, It's had a good period the last uh, last two, you know, last three years. It's been growing pretty well, although sales have been going down, which is not good. Um, we're showing it, the variation of about zero return per year on safety to 14% on default. That's yeah. a big variation. And so if you look at, when I look at it, you go, what, where's the differences? Yeah. And the yeah. differences are very much in the earnings rate. So the default is giving them 16% growth and safety is giving them 0.6. Mm. So, and that's based on historical numbers. Okay. So it, it's very, okay. very, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's a tough business 
And to me, it's just too hard. So I, yep. I sort of agree with Scott. If you owned it already, you'd probably uh, keep it. But if you, if you, um, I would no way would I buy it. Okay. All right. Scott Phillips from Watley Fall. Great to have you back. All in one piece from the holidays. Thanks very much for your time. Mark Morland, Thanks, always Gosh, a pleasure to have you on the, uh, the panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all the Good effort you put into it. Good to see no you both. Let's much. just recap the uh, final five stocks. Uh, Fisher and Paykel, a no from Scott, a yes from, uh, from Mark Morland. Uh, both a no on Incitech Pivot. Uh, Hum Group, a hold from, from Scott, a no from Mark. Uh, Regal Investment, uh, no, and a hold for elders from both. If you uh, want to submit any stocks you'd like opinions on from our expert panel, flick them in an email, thecaller.ausbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at TV handle. You can see all the stocks in the calls portfolio. Head to ausbiz.co forward slash portfolio. And don't forget, uh, if you want a wrap up of everything that's happened in the world of finance, the markets, business news. At the end of the day, you've got to subscribe to the newsletter. You get Scuddy's view there. You get a link to the close of business, the COB podcast, link to all the most popular interviews during the day on the platform here at Ausbiz. Subscribe, ausbiz.co forward slash the COB. And uh, don't forget, uh, the boss of Hub24, coming up very shortly after uh, some impressive numbers earlier this morning. Of course, Hub24, one of the best performing stocks on the Australian share market last uh, financial year. That's it for uh, the call for today. See you same time tomorrow. Uh, We'll be back with more of Ausbiz after this.